This is the View from the Couch podcast, and I'm your host, Pierce Wiesnar. In today's episode, we are taking a look at the season six premiere for Game of Thrones titled The Red Woman. And we're going to start things off by taking a look at the wall. The season started much like the last one ended, the body of Jon Snow laying on the ground. Obviously, the show couldn't start anywhere else, as it's been the big question going into the season being What's going on with everyone's favorite bastard? Just when you thought things couldn't get any spicier at the wall, the writers find a way. Ed will return with the Wildings to battle Thorn at the Night's Watch, and with Sansa knowing that Jon is at the wall, it's going to get very messy very fast at Castle Black. In hilarious twist of fate, Davos puts his faith in Melisandre, the Red Woman, to bail them out if it comes to that. However, Melisandre is at a loss. She backs Stannis, and now Stannis is dead. She misread the flames, and it was never Stannis, it was John. He was the horse she was supposed to back. Stannis was only a guide to John, not the chosen one. Now with John dead and doubting her faith in the Red God and her ability to read the flames, she takes off her glamour, revealing that she's a very, 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 very old woman, using magic to appear young before going to bed, which confirms a book, a book theory, hopefully the first of many this season. While we've seen many people get resurrected, Thoris of Mir used the kiss of life to bring back Beric Dondarrion from the dead several times. Maybe Melisandre took off her glamour to take a look at herself one last time before she gives Jon Snow the kiss of life later this season. Going a little further south, we are going to look at the plot line in the north. For the first time, we see that Ramsay has a heart. It's a black and it's a twisted heart but a heart nonetheless. It's oddly touching to see Ramsay grieve, but we know this to be a guy who hunts people for sport, so how much sympathy we kind of give to him is relatively minuscule. Ramsay grieves for Miranda, but he doesn't want a funeral pyre. He wants her body to be fed to the dogs. Now, Ramsay, he's the only one in Westeros, Westeros who puts the needs of his pets above, it, above everything else. He is the PETA of the Seven Kingdoms. Roos and Ramsay talk about how Stannis is dead, but Sansa is missing. It's one step forward and two steps back for the Boltons, and without Sansa, they are left very vulnerable as everyone in the North wants to see them flayed, and Sansa was like a shield for them, protecting them from the other houses. Ramsay has, and I quote, a team after them with my best hounds, and after last season, what would Ramsay do for just 20 good men? While the Boltons are clearly the bad guys, I kind of do feel for Roos Bolton. Roos, much like Tywin Lannister, has done everything for his house, building up to new levels of power and status, only for it all to be potentially undone by their idiotic children. And just when all is lost for Sansa and Theon, the dynamic duo of, ba- of Brienne and Pod arrive to save the day. Like many viewers, I found it kind of ridiculous for Brienne to arrive at the most opportune time. But the dogs were barking, and it made life easy for Brienne and Pod to follow. Speaking of Pod, last time we saw him with a sword in his hand, he was clumsy and looked more likely to hurt himself than any adversary. So when did Pod just all of a sudden become a warrior able to fight on horseback? It's a legitimate question with no real answer, as Pod magically gained the ability to fight because the plot needed him to. And after getting rejected by Arya and stopped by Littlefinger, Brienne finally is able to complete one part of her quest to protect the Stark children. It's only taken it's only taken it's only taken a few seasons to do so, but Brienne never wavered in her mission and now begins 
life uh, and now begins life with the long climb up the ladder for Sansa. She has a look at a lot going on this season, and she has a lot of things to use at her fingertips. She's learned people skills with Littlefinger in the veil. She knows that her two youngest brothers are actually alive and not dead, and with Jon Snow at Castle Black, as well as everyone loving her, and everyone wants to get rid of the Boltons in the north, there's a lot of momentum with Sansa right now, so get a back a horse. I think Sans is going to be doing a lot of good as she's going to probably rid the north of the Boltons. That's going to be the most obvious end goal for her this season. Shifting gears and heading a little further east to Marine with Danny and Drogon gone. It's up to Varys and Tyrion to plot the next course of action. Tyrion, he's in a similar position that he was in during season two. However, this time he's in Marine dealing with the sons of the Harpy. Tyrion tries to be a man of the people, walking through the city, attempting to get a lay of the land, but almost pays a woman so that he can eat her baby. At least with Varys aiding him, Tyrion won't burn the city down. The odd couple see that their fleet of ships burn in the harbor, which is just another lovely day in Marine. One of the many good things about Thrones is that they put two characters together that really shouldn't be together. From Arya and the Hound to now Tyrion and Varys, Thrones has a knack for making such great odd couples. Tyrion and Varys are played by such talented actors and are also in a plotline that gives them a lot of screen time, so it really should be an enjoyable watch. They play very well off each other and with a nice bit of humor to add levity to a pretty desperate situation. I wouldn't be surprised to see these two win out for the favorite odd couple of the series award at the end of the show. In the Dothraki Sea, Dora and Jorah, Dora and Jorah, that's pretty, Dario and Jorah awkwardly bond over their love of Danny. In another bit of plot convenience, Jorah finds Danny's ring, revealing that Danny has been captured by the Dothraki. And after rising to the top of the Great Pyramid, Danny goes through her own walk of shame with this Kalasar. Cal Moro has one of the best lines of the young season, saying, You are nobody, the millionth of your name, queen of nothing, slave to Cal Moro. But the line that has so much power behind it is immediately undercut by Danny revealing that she is a widow of Cal Drogo. It's confusing how Danny doesn't know that a Cal's widow spends her remaining days in Vaz Dothrak. She went there in season one, was immersed in the Dothraki culture, and spent time with the Crones. It's pretty jarring for Danny to not know that, but the reveal was meant for the audience and not for Khaleesi. Shifting things a little north into the west, it's, we spend time with Arya and Bravos. She's now blind and begging for money on the streets. Struggling to adapt to life, now blind, the waif shows up to beat up Daria, beat up Arya, promising to show up again tomorrow. They struggle it out just long enough to show that Arya's training hasn't been stopped, but has taken a strange new turn. And in the capital, King's Landing, this is a home to several plot lines that will eventually converge in later episodes. With one queen out of jail, Queen Marjorie remains in jail. Last season, we had so much fun with the High Sparrow and Cersei, and I really hope and wonder if Marge is going to go through the same process in Season 6, or her time in jail will be cut short by other plots. We don't even see Sir Loras, even though Marjorie is desperate to see or hear about her brother. Cersei has her joy turned to pain with Jamie returning with Marcella's body. It's a nice call back to the Maggie the Frog prophecy scene in season five. And after losing his hand, Jamie, he's been on a path of selflessness. 
However, after losing his daughter, Jamie wants to take more than everything back from anyone who ever hurt them. While it makes sense on screen, it's just a dramatic change from his character arc that's been in place for a couple of seasons now. And I thought it was funny to hear that they did not mention Joffrey when the two Lannister children talk about what they have lost. And in Dorne, this is the most controversial bit of the entire episode and is an early favorite for a most controversial part of not only this entire season, but the entire series. And just when you thought the Doran plot really couldn't get any worse, the show radically changes gears once again. While Doran has been the worst plotline of the countless thrones has introduced, the decision to kill Doran and Tristane is very controversial. Aside from the fact that Arya Hota, one of the greatest fighters in the world, went out in a similar fashion to Barristan Selmy last year, there's just no way a character like that should have died at the hands of a sand snake. Given him, just give him the epic heroic fight he deserves. Book readers will know what I'm talking about. However, the show-only crowd will know nothing about Hota, and this is at the heart of why Dorne fails. Having Ilaria in the Sand Snake stage a coup is within their character, after spending all their screen time last year being angry and wanting to avenge the death of Oberyn. However, when Oberyn wanted to avenge the death of his sister at the hands of the Mountain, it brought about his death. So really, what's going to be different? you got to maybe learn your lesson in that trying to avenge the death of someone you love might not be the best way to go about it. The beauty of having Doran in charge was the contrast between the hot-blooded Alaria and the Sand Snakes and the cool, comic-collected team of, Ori- of Doran and Arya Hota. However, instead of laying the proper groundwork last season, we spent that time with Jamie and Bronn. Dorne never got the screen time it deserved, always getting whatever spare minutes the episode could allow. Now with Dorne dead, the audience is stuck with the Teenage Mutant Ninja Sand Snakes and Alaria, four characters that have been extremely poorly written and acted. Lines like, you greedy bitch, you know that, and the iconic bad pussy line from a season ago make it easy to see why no one likes Dorne. Dorne has been defined by weak writing and even weaker characters. Yet Dorne got off to such a great start, with Oberyn quickly becoming a fan favorite from his excellent introduction in a King's Landing brothel. It's sad to see the show not fix the many wrongs of Dorne, and instead plowing through full steam ahead. As a fan of Dorne in the books, watching them butcher such fun characters in an entertaining region of the realm doesn't give me much hope about this new chapter in Dorne. However, Dorne has been sacrificed for the greater good of the show. Much like the Iron Islands, which have never been a key component to the central plotlines, they attempt to juggle several different plotlines and had to do the difficult job of choosing what to air and what to cut. Dorne has been sacrificed to speed up the action of the show and keep the show moving in a forward direction. Nevertheless, there is a way Dorne have be- could have been done well. The sharp drop in quality in relation to Dorne and every other plotline is so drastic that it makes you want to skip through the Dornish scenes. The show has taken liberties with the source material, and they've done some good stuff as well as some bad. We are not on a hype train anymore, it's a plot train, and the tracks are greased with the blood of Dornish characters. Let's all pour out some Dornish wine for darn interesting. It's hard to miss someone you barely knew. And just a couple of additional thoughts before we wrap things up here. The episode for me felt like an epilogue to the season 5 finale, and not a season premiere. While I can get behind and understand why Danny and John were shown, it at least would have been fun for the new season to give us a glimpse of what Bran has been doing since he skipped out on season 5. 
also since we're heading back to the Iron Islands, a plot that has been placed on the back burner for several seasons. Why not spend time with the Greyjoys, a family we know little about aside from Theon, and since we are getting introduced to a new Greyjoy character, why not give them some screen time? A season premiere shouldn't be about the past. It should be about what's new and exciting that the season has to show us. Instead, to look back on what happened on season 5, if I wanted to do that, I would just rewatch it. But I don't, because season 5 was worse than many remember. If you feel like this episode ended a little early, you're not alone. For a show that has a large number of increasingly complex plot lines and is without any commercial breaks, 47 minutes is incredibly short for a Game of Thrones episode, a season premiere no less. This episode was a building block for later episodes. The Red Woman was one with, with relatively little plot progression and said it was a, a time for characters to learn things that the audience already knew. And looking ahead to next week, the episode's titled Home. It's coming out the 1st of May, and the Game of Thrones released a little bit of a plot synopsis for the episode next week. Bran, he trains with the Three-Eyed Raven. In King's Landing, Jamie advises Tommen. Tyrion demands good news, but has to make his own. At Castle Black, the Night's Watch stands behind Thorn. Ramsay Bolton proposes a plan, and Balon Greyjoy entertains other proposals. So just when you thought, wow, the first episode had a lot going on, and it felt like they're throwing so many things at the wall and hoping it would stick. You've got Bran, you've got King's Landing, you've got Marine, you've got Castle Black, you've got Ramsey, and you've got the Greyjoys. That is six plot lines you're going to try to cover in one hour. It's amazing that Game of Thrones, they came out and said, we're thinking about having only 13 hours of TV left. At this pace, if they're going to spend the entirety of Season 5 throwing as many plot lines as they possibly can into a one hour or 47 minutes, it's going to be absolutely mind-blowing. They really, in my opinion, and I'm not alone in saying this, just trim it down. Only show about three or four plot lines per episode. That's what you really should do so we spend the appropriate time with certain plot lines, with certain characters, so that when the big stuff ends up happening, most likely at episode nine, because that's what Game of Thrones does, it really has that huge emotional impact because just with what they did with Dorne, there's no emotional impact. It's shocking, but really not that shocking. It's just okay because we didn't like these characters and these characters doing things that are within their character. I'm not surprised. I'm not shocked. I'm just extremely disappointed. And for Game of Thrones to continue to throw six plot lines in an episode, it's just going to be a lot of people sitting and talking, which at times can make for relatively fun t TV, but Game of Thrones doesn't have that great of a track record for doing that in these recent seasons. But that's it. That's my first episode recap for season six of Game of Thrones. Next week home, I will be doing it. Hopefully it won't be coming out on a Tuesday. Hopefully it'll be coming out on a Monday. But uh, thanks for listening. Next up for the show is going to be a Chelsea podcast as they face Tottenham Hotspur over the weekend. So that'll be a fun one. And I'm trying to get a movie done soon, hopefully before Civil War. But if not, that's totally okay. This has been another episode of Game of, Game of Thrones. This has been another episode of the View from the Couch podcast. Thanks for listening.